Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Fascinated by markets at a very young age, Ben Melkman has spent his investing career thinking through the intersection of politics, macroeconomics, and the price of options. After earning a degree from the London School of Economics, Ben hit the FX desk at Morgan Stanley, quickly establishing himself as an invaluable resource for the largest macro hedge funds who sought his counsel on how to best structure trades in light of vol surfaces on offer across asset markets. After a highly successful run at Brevin Howard, Ben established Light Sky Macro in 2016. Our conversation is about large vol events. With respect to the global financial crisis, Ben dove into the complexities of credit derivative markets, concluding that the price of insurance was outlandishly cheap relative to the actual risks and the potential for contagion. In our discussion, Ben makes highly insightful points around the inherent risks of over-reliance on modeling, the degree to which correlation assumptions can lead to gross underestimation of risk, and the vastly interconnected nature of the financial system. Ben's views on the interaction between politics and markets and the manner in which investors sometimes fail to anticipate regime shifts is fascinating. He points to the onset of Abenomics in 2013, a massive campaign that aggressively pushed the yen down, Nikkei up, and volatility up. In the period prior to this wholesale shift in policy, option prices were all skewed in the opposite direction. As we finish this excellent discussion, Ben looks forward to the potential that the combination of more aggressive fiscal policy in conjunction with accommodative monetary policy might cause a rethink of the inflation shortfall that has characterized the post-crisis era at the very time when inflation is a highly unloved asset class. Lastly, Ben offers thoughts on the 2020 U.S. election, excited about the potential market action that may arise from the starkly different views offered by the Democrats and Republicans. Please enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Ben Melkman. Ben, welcome to the Alpha Exchange. Thanks very much, Dean. Yeah, great to have you and so much to talk about in the world of macro and specifically through the lens of options prices. Why don't we just start by getting a little bit of background on your career? How is it that you developed such a keen interest in finance and specifically in macro? So from a very early age, I've actually been interested in finance. I can remember being a young child and some of the first things I read was the Australian Financial Review. I, I don't really know how I picked it up or I think maybe it was a newspaper my dad had around and I saw him reading it. And so I've always had a keen interest in finance. I started trading shares with the first money that I earned from uh, a small little weekend job when I was in primary school. And so I kind of, I always knew this is what I wanted to go into. I studied London School of Economics and before starting the graduate program at Deutsche Bank, before spending most of my sell-side career at Morgan Stanley. And I guess it was really a Morgan Stanley that I really kind of got into the world of macro as, as I know it today and was extremely fortunate, actually. I, I started very early on in on the currency desk and started originally on the option trading desk and showed quite a strong skill for coming up with ideas and structuring interesting ways to put on views. And so the head of sales at that time saw that and grabbed me and said, great, I've got all these great clients and uh, I don't have that skill set. So can you help me? And so from being a very young analyst, I started getting exposure to the great and the good of macro. And what I tended to do is even though I was the junior 
and a price would come in from, again, one of the big principals at the big funds, and you're supposed to put a price back to them. I kind of, after a pretty quick time, said, worked out what they were doing and came back with, okay, I think this is what you're trying to do. I think this is a better way of doing it. And sure enough, they were quite responsive to that. And so, again, at a pretty early age, I started developing pretty close relationships with people like Alan Howard, who I went on to work for, and, you know, Lewis Bacon, et cetera, amongst others. And I took that kind of same curiosity and structuring knack and, again, maybe right time, right place within a firm that allowed me to do this and started going around the firm and first into emerging markets, which was quite natural from foreign exchange. And as I taught myself emerging markets, not only currencies, but obviously in EM, currencies, rates, credit are all very interlinked in those economies. And so I got as I got my rates and credit knowledge up, I started doing a lot of core rates and core credit. And so eventually by 2005, I was earning about 90% of my production outside of FX. And the firm kind of recognized this was great. I was speaking to these big principals and doing business with them all across the firm. And so they gave me the opportunity to formalize that. And they let me start my own group reporting direct to firm management without all the politics of sitting in a product silo. And I could cover your Allens or Lewis Bacons or Paul Tudor Jones, et cetera, in the way they trade. I didn't have to cover them and look at the world and then go, what's the best currency idea? But I could really look at the macro world around us and the paradigm shifts, political changes, economic trend changes, and really try and structure what is the best portfolio, what are the best trades for the environment we're in, in a kind of agnostic way. And that was a pretty unique seat or vantage point to be able to do that from the street. And so that went well. And so I guess I started my career in this way, more in an advisory capacity. And I was in a pretty fortunate seat to be able to do that in the same way that you guess from the mirror image as you would from running a, a right. macro firm. So the early days of your career, of course, we had a couple of significant risk events. LTCM is 98. That's a big blow up and has at its core, probably the Asian contagion from the year before, a kind of a currency crisis, Argentina in 2001, US tech bubble, you know, plenty of things happened in and around the turn of the century. Of course, the euro was born. What would you say if you're sort of thinking back in the early days for you, are there any formative periods of time that you mentioned looking around the world and being able to see the linkages across some of these asset classes? Were there events or periods where pricing perhaps was inconsistent with the framework that you were developing that wound up becoming a part of your kind of core philosophy? Is there anything that truly stands out from the early days of your career? Sure. So the financial crisis, so seven or eight, was definitely a career-defining moment for me. Fortunately, I was on the right side of that. I was able to see that coming quite early and starting from the end of 2006, a large and significant part of my business was built on understanding the credit crisis was to come. And I guess one of the reasons I'm in the seat I am today is because of that. A lot of my clients at the time, not only were not credit specialists, many of them had never really traded credit of any meaningful way. And I was kind of able to walk through the domino effects of and the implications and taking what was happening in a small part of the subprime market and not only be able to monetize the kind of inherent optionality those securities offered you. And so we were able to put on a large amount of risk at very low insurance prices in the CDS markets of essentially synthetic ABS CDOs. 
and we walked it again through every tranche. Started with the triple B minus, into the triple Bs, into the single A's, double A's, and eventually triple A's in understanding that these were all essentially the same security. But then in understanding how that was going on, taking that into CMBS, taking from CMBS into understanding that would go into CLOs and therefore corporate CDS and walking that through, then building optionality through corporate CDS structures and buying protection on CDO tranches. And then taking that into the implications as that started to play out, how would that then affect rates and rate vol? Obviously, that would clearly a financial, as financial spreads started widening and understanding the impact that would have on the economy, central bank policy, buying the right receiver structures, curve cap structures, uh, understanding how that would obviously then impact FX and FX vol. And, and so that was a, as I said, a somewhat of a career defining moment in being able to really been a great seat to kind of walk through those dominoes of effects through the different asset classes and also to be in the center of the conversation between the firm. Obviously, it was a moment of huge dynamic change of the great importance of the intersection of politics and finance. And I think that has really defined me and my process. And probably because of that moment, part of my process has always been to understand the political environment we're in. And so in that moment, again, being in the center of the conversation between firm management CEO of Morgan Stanley, who I spent a lot of time with at that time, and a group of maybe the six or eight largest clients of the firm, trying to understand every day, every week, especially as the crisis really unfolded through 2008, how not only the economy was changing, but what would be both the policy response at the central bank and at the political level, and how that would affect the different assets we were trading. And and so if I look then at once I left Morgan Stanley to join the buy side initially at Brevin Howard before my own firm, and I look back at what some of the, the main trades have been in, in my investing career, almost all of them have had that political context I think it was probably that two years of living and breathing the financial crisis and seeing how some people were undone in their investing by ignoring the political policy effects and consequences, et cetera, that politics and that intersection of politics and finance and assets and policy response and the reflexivity of that policy response has always been a key part of my process from there. I mean, that seems to be a critical aspect is not just what may happen, but because you know policymakers and central bankers are not going to sit by idly trying to anticipate what they do and then how the asset prices react in response to the response. So we definitely come back to that maybe in the context of conversation on the Eurozone crisis. I want to go back to the sort of early days of the financial crisis. And in some ways, it began in 2007. It was sort of underneath the surface more. It wasn't cataclysmic in terms of VIX of 80, but things were certainly happening. And you mentioned how cheap the insurance was. You know, one of the things I always go back to is I, I want to say that Lehman CDS traded as low as 20 or 25 basis points. I think even less. I mean, we were buying in December 2006, we put together baskets of both first to defaults and second to defaults of Lehman Bear, Morgan Stanley, Goldman's. And I think the second to defaults, you were paying single digit basis points. Amazing. And so I guess two questions. One, when you step back and you look at the entirety of your career and you spent all your time thinking about these macro events, but then of course, overlaying price and convexity. First question is, have you seen anything that really resembles, maybe it's an ex post degree of mispricing? Because for years, a couple of folks were 
long the housing bust, but if you were a couple years early, that was a painful couple years. And it just felt like nothing could pop this thing. It just kept going and going and going. So I guess one, have you seen things that mispriced on a macro basis over the course of your career? And then two, just trying to explore the way in which you were able to piece this together. Because a lot of folks, even though in hindsight, it might've seen obvious, clearly people were not (laughs) anticipating the degree of damage that was set to unfold. How do you piece all that together? So I think on the first one, by definition, there's a survivorship bias, as in subprime insurance, general credit protection in that period, 05, 06, 07, was unbelievably cheap due to the amount of leverage being put into the system, financial engineering at that time. And almost by definition, there has never been as extreme a trade since in terms of what was the cost of that insurance to what was the payout. (laughs) So there are clearly today, you can look at many examples where, and certainly over my investing career, where the cost, where things are extremely skewed. And so there's either things that have gotten to the very extreme expensiveness of the distribution or things that are the extreme cheapness of the distribution. But clearly you never, in advance, you never have any certainty over what that payout will be in the same way that you did during the financial crisis. I think what was such a great opportunity in the financial crisis was, as I described earlier, the fact that you didn't have to have your whole position on in advance. These things didn't go from single-digit basis points, essentially par instruments with very low coupons to zero instantaneously. These things bubbled and got worse and you started to see the contagion and the market didn't price that in the sequencing with any efficiency at all until well into 2008. And so one thing that I really learned in that period and that has really become a, I'd say, a key part of my process today is I'm fortunate to be in a seat where I can look at anything and everything, but that also means I don't have to look at anything in particular. And so I'm able to rove around and go, what has the possibility to be a big paradigm shift? What has the possibility for an asset to move a lot? And then in that line, I might think that about a few different potential assets or regions. How can I really gain a great knowledge network in those areas? And so if I go back to the end of 06 and 07, when I first started learning about subprime, the asset-backed security markets, both in residential and commercial, the linkages into credit, I was fortunate to be around a great, wonderful group at Morgan Stanley. And if I look at that group, they had such a clearly defined outlook of how this was going to pan out, which is ironic in the sense of how much money Morgan Stanley lost. And it's probably a good little side note, and I probably shouldn't go into it too much, but there are essentially two groups of Morgan Stanley, one on the market-making desk and one in the prop group, who had exactly opposite positions, exactly opposite views. They actually both reported to the same person, which is a different story entirely. And it's amazing how, so the only reason Morgan Stanley suffered such severe losses was a prop group had a trade-on in about $14 billion, which was the exact structure that the group running the market-making desk were warning about, actually offering me liquidity to my clients to take the other side of, saying, 
How can there be any certainty of prediction? So you've taken a tranche, the triple B minuses, which are about a 60 basis point tranche. It was roughly, let's call it the 28 to 3.4% tranche. And so you've taken this tiny slither and you've made that into another whole securitization. And so there's zero ability for you to say losses can be between 2.8 and 2.9, but not between 2.9 and 3.0, which was essentially what the prop group at MS had. And so the more that they showed me the complete idiocy of that mathematics, how far that financial engineering had taken things, how cheap it was to construct a bet to take the other side of that, and the volume of securities that were out there that would get wiped out if their view that if housing was to actually slow, the whole 2.8 to 3.4 would probably get wiped out. And then once you started to think through, once you understood that, which I was very fortunate to have great friends and great mentors who really understood those technicals, it was then quite obvious where things could go to. And I think that was the main hurdle to understand that technicality and how much of an industry had been built around the idea that housing prices couldn't actually sustain more than high twos, mid threes of losses. And as you started, the economy started to deteriorate as it became clear that there was some pretty extreme fraud in these structures. It made the idea of the certainty embedded in these structures so crazy. But then again, what was the craziest thing about it, back to your point of how do you identify, how could you build the risk when others lost? Crazy thing about what happened is even when the first tranche started to take losses and triple B minuses widened, you could still get liquidity to then go and buy protection on the triple Bs. And as triple Bs started to widen, you could still go and essentially get the single A's. And like the market just in that early period of 06, 07, just gave you the opportunity. I remember the person who ran the CMBS desk at Morgan Stanley then has become one of my great friends today. After subprime had completely blown out, completely blown out in mid-2007. I mean, this was no secret anymore. AAA CMBS was still trading in the single digits of basis points protection. And so we started the same playbook we've done in subprime. So the market certainly gave you those opportunities to participate in what was kind of an obvious playbook, not necessarily in what was kind of an obvious playbook once the first dominoes started falling. You almost didn't have to predict that first domino fall, and it was obviously better if you did, but the price didn't jump in a nonlinear fashion once the beginning of the game was up. So a couple things on the prop desk, maybe versus the market making desk, and this is my understanding, you're much closer to it, but two observations. First is the prop desk trade was the right side of the trade to begin with, but lugging a fair amount of carry. You're paying a theta bill, you don't get insurance for nothing. And so you layer in the sale of these very far out of the money tranches for pennies on the dollar. So you try to make yourself carry neutral, but of course you absorb the tail. So that's my first understanding. And then the second one is that the trades that were done in the very, very far out of the money tranches fit into the system as basically riskless. That you've sold a gigantic amount of convexity. Exactly. (laughs) We are what our systems tell us to do. And one of my big kind of things I keep going back to in terms of how we risk manage things is we take the Black-Scholes model. It's a very useful construct. We know 
it's not exactly true, but it's fair enough. People use it all day long. We know that there's fat tails in markets, but do we take some of this stuff too seriously? Markets can do crazy things, <laughs> especially as you said, once you anticipate not just the crisis, but the response. I think it was August of 2008 where they just came in and they banned short selling and financials one morning. I think the XLF was up 18%. <laughs> it's enough to kind of scare you away for a day. So what's your view as we sort of think about the interaction between modeling, the math of finance overlaid on the reality that markets are composed of people and we all have different risk tolerances that kind of come and go. Fear can pervade at some time. Optimism can pervade at some time. How do you think about the interaction between just the math of modeling derivatives and more the realities of the market? I think both are important, but above all, common sense is the most important. If you go back to that Morgan Stanley example, you're 100% right, is Howie Huber and the prop group initially, I think they had something like 2 to $3 billion of outright shorts. Carrie started getting at them, so they funded it by selling $15 billion of the AAA. And of course, it all went to zero and they lost $12 billion. What was amazing about that was when you're talking about triple B minus or triple A, you're talking about repackaged CDOs, essentially CDOs of CDOs, where the whole underlier of all of that was one 0.6% tranche. And so, yes, maybe the Morgan Stanley systems allowed them to do that. But again, to go back to some of the great guys on the market making desk, people like Eric Siegel, who are at more cap today, Jay Halleck, who's still a senior member of the Morgan Stanley management team. They were banging the table, pointing this out. This was not a crazy unknown known. And so to think you could pinpoint that in that kind of ratio was kind of crazy. And so if you look at that as an example and take it back to your question of how to approach markets, the way I like to think of it is almost to talk about the theoretical, so theoretical market strategy versus practical market strategy. And certainly even if I look at my team here at LightSky, that's how we've split it out. So we have fundamental economics, which is a key part of understanding a trade. We have the theoretical financial modeling, which is absolutely crucial to be able to look at assets around the world and get a some kind of a concept of value. But market strategists are there to provide that input into the process, not to be the process themselves. You mentioned LTCM in the beginning. We've seen the examples of the Morgan Stanley Prop Group in 2008. It's very important not to confuse, let's say, theoretical market opportunity with a pragmatic market opportunity. And so that's why at the end of the day, you also then need to look at the practical opportunity set, both myself as the portfolio manager, my trading team, to also understand what actually makes sense? What is the real world beyond shift F9 on a spreadsheet? And to understand what can happen in a world due to excessive positioning. You again mentioned LTCM example. What can affect the theoretical and cause a much greater problem? And, or what can create a much greater opportunity? What also often happens in big paradigm shifts is people are willing to sell you vol because you've been in one state of the world when you're going into a completely different state of the world. So a great example would be, again, major political events. So if you look at what happened, for example, in 2012 into 13 in Japanese yen in Nikkei, Japan had done nothing for years, for the three or four years, certainly until the crisis falls at the lows, or the skew to vol was to yen appreciation or Nikkei weakness. Because at the end of the day, generally, 
theoretical practitioners or the model types are pricing securities over an observation of recent history, they tend not to have the ability or the inclination or it tends not to be part of their process to think about, to use imagination. What if? How could that change in the future? And so when you have a game-defining moment, like a major political election, which theoretically can completely change financial policy and then therefore have big moves in asset prices, it's almost impossible that Vol will take that into account. And so you were able to buy, for example, in Japan, options that were priced at 30, 40 to one payout over six months that priced out, that got to those levels that that paid out 100% within weeks because essentially those options were priced off recent history instead of what could be in the future. And you see that all the time. Well, and so as you mentioned paradigm shift in, in Japan, I was thinking kind of around the same time you had the Eurozone crisis unfold in sort of 2010, 11 Apex, maybe late 2011, and then Draghi takes the helm, and it's mid-2012 that he's got his whatever-it-takes speech. And that, in some ways, was a paradigm shift, too. That was a, a stoppage of the contagion for a long time. He really rested it under control. What was that period like for you? I mean, you had firms like MF Global go under, betting on Italian sovereigns. What are the lessons from that? There was some wild price moves in Italy and Greece and Spain and Portugal. There were definitely wild price moves. Don't forget at that time, a little bit different to today, the financial crisis was still in people's recent memories. So people had just lived through Lehman 2008, which made it both better and worse in that people on the buy side were ultra nervous and ultra prepared in a way about what could happen, which probably led to some of the extreme weakness in prices that we saw. So Brevin Howard at the time as the crisis got worse at one stage, we were cut off from using Deutsche and BNP and Sockgen as counterparties. Again, you had Lehman Brothers in recent memory. So what if this got worse? What if every bank in Europe went under? So it was a pretty extreme environment, made more extreme, I think, by the muscle memory of the post-Lehman 2008 environment. It was also a great trading environment. 2012 was the second best year of my career. I think what a great lesson, going back to your original question about lessons of those formative years, 0708, probably one of the best lessons of 0708 was prices can go so much further than anyone could imagine. There is no concept of value. Back to your question on strategists and models, there is no concept of value. There are securities in 2008 that were money good, that were paying its cash flow, that always paid its cash flow that went to single digits, that went to two and three cents on the dollar before eventually over the next five years coming back to pay par, right? Par securities that lost 98% of its value that paid par after giving you years of positive coupons. But if you were too early, it didn't matter if you had a model that said, wow, I think this security is worth 100 and I'm buying it at 80. You're out of business within months if you bought that security 80 on its way to two. So I think one of the great lessons of 07, 08 was about keeping dry powder. And if you were stayed alive to reap the fruits of the beginning of 09, you could make a fortune. But if you were too early, you're out of business. The best time to sell vol is after a crisis. <laughs> you know, it's the high point typically or buy assets. Right, but when you got to get there, right? Exactly. But you've got to get there because, again, that's easy to say ex post, 
maybe I thought after the first subprime blowing up in summer of 07, that was the crisis at VIX at 25 or 28 or 30. Maybe I thought Bear Stearns going under was the bottom with VIX at 45. You're not to know that 80 was the high until exposed that happening. And so generally it goes back to the politics. I think you generally need the political system to draw a line in the sand. So when did you really know the financial crisis was over? When could you really be safe to buy assets in 2009 was all of a sudden when you had the full force of policy and government intervention, QE1, TALF, TARP. You realize the reason why past securities went to cents on the dollar was a liquidity crisis. All of a sudden, you had the full force of both the central bank and the treasury giving the market back that liquidity. Right. Right. And that's when you could buy things. In the same way, to go back to your question on the Eurozone, Draghi, whatever it, so the combination, I think it was June, you finally had the Germans cave in when you had the big European Commission summit and the European Council meeting where the Germans accepted banking union, followed by two weeks later, Draghi, whatever it takes, followed by a few weeks later, the announcement of OMT. And so in kind of a long answer to your question, I think the opportunity in, at least for me, and different people have different styles, but I probably participated less in the Eurozone blowing up, but managed to avoid it. So managed to keep positive P&L, not managed to avoid any liquid securities, managed to avoid getting into the securities too early, wait and very close to monitoring and being part of the dialogue of that policy intervention, and then to buy the distressed securities. And so I did great by generally having a very clean book until with the banking union, and then through that June, July, August run of policy intervention, starting to accumulate assets into that distress combined with that drawing the line under the sand with that accumulated policy intervention. Was it Draghi's just the forcefulness of his style, his predecessor, Trichet, he tried a couple other things? I believe he had, uh, forget what his mechanism was to provide support to assets that were falling in price, but it clearly wasn't viewed by the market as credible enough. And maybe was it Draghi just so forceful to the market that he finally got confidence that he literally would do whatever it takes? Was it a signaling effect? It was that combined with real action. It was, you took, for example, when Trichet was trying to intervene, he was trying to do that while the Germans were still lecturing the periphery on, they were being very naughty boys and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the real capitulation started, as I said, at that European Council meeting in June where the Germans accepted banking union, i.e. we got to a point where the Germans understood that it wasn't a blame game anymore, the whole system was under threat, and that German capitulation into taking on a policy which until then had been completely anathema to them, I think was the beginning of the end of the crisis. Then you had drag whatever it takes, which was a powerful signal, but don't forget... The periphery bonds still went into the August ECB several weeks, about three weeks after Draghi's whatever it takes, at the highs in yield or lows in prices. So Draghi's speech, even though that's gone into folklore, wasn't what actually turned prices around. It wasn't until they actually announced OMT at that August ECB meeting of 2012 that we formed a low. And so I would look at it as a sequence of events, the EU Council banking union acceptance, Draghi, whatever it takes. And then that's going to combine with not only my signaling to you, but 
we've now announced a policy where the ECB is going to selectively buy Spanish and Italian bonds. I'm proving to you that I'll do whatever it takes. It's questionable whether they had the mandate. So I'm proving to you that I'm willing to go any step to do this. And just to show you how broken the market was, even on that day, bond prices actually ended lower. I couldn't believe it. I bought, there was a Spanish auction in the morning with ECB, which I bought into heavily, feeling that there would be a very significant policy response because Draghi had signaled it to you. You got the policy response and the market was so broken that even with probably one of the greatest policy responses of the last decade, the market still sold securities that day. I remember I was in London, it was the London Olympics, and I just didn't understand. And fortunately, the next day, after a night's sleep, the market understood the significance of the policy response. And that indeed was the low and securities pretty much rallied in a straight line for the last seven years, <laughs> barring some little blips like last May. But I think words are one thing, but I think it's really the combination of the credibility of the policymaker backed up by real action. So both the financial crisis, let's say the Fed and the Treasury, U.S. Treasury, had their hands full, the Eurozone crisis in a similar way for the ECB, they're both about arresting, in some ways, asset price declines. It's a finance project, not necessarily an economics project. It's economics through finance. First, let's stop the contagion. Do you think that that lives on in terms of the scars? How much does it or does it not shape the current philosophy at the Fed? Are they constantly looking over their shoulder, worried about some version of that reappearing? And has it, in your mind, played a role in just how they've deliberated policy, not just post-crisis era, but we're 10 years post-crisis at this point. How do you think the financial crisis lives on in terms of the psyche at the Fed? I think everyone is shaped to an extent by their own experience. And so clearly in our generation, the financial crisis was a cataclysmic event, especially to anyone involved in the world of finance. So I think clearly for a long period of time, the response of central bankers has clearly been one that was reflexive to what they went through in the financial crisis and ensuring that that doesn't happen again. But the reality is that will create almost an equal and opposite problem, and we're starting to see that. So yes, what Bernanke Fed and the Yellen Fed did was try to ensure that we were extremely protected from that kind of event happening again. I guess the investing community still remembers that. So when Jay Powell in December of last year, a new Fed governor somewhat, by now, as you said, a decade removed, tries to normalize policy, he's in turn has his own issues with what happened to him in, let's say, the, the December crash of 2018 and now how much of the policy of 2019 was affected by his experiences in December 2018. But I think on a much more macro level, if you take a big step back and you look at policy over the last decade, and what was supposed to be temporary policy ends up becoming not only the norm, but becomes also, let's say, a competitive race to the bottom where, where not only do you have the Fed going to the policy stance they did, but that also affecting what the Europeans did, the British did, the Japanese, etc., And that all played with each other because in a world where economic growth has been somewhat disappointing in the post-crisis years, we've also been in a world where currencies matter and look where everyone is easing. 
the scope for currency volatilities diminish. So to try and get a currency advantage means that each central bank has had to go further and further and further in, into uncharted territory. And I think what we're slowly starting to see in 2019 is that maybe certain central banks, policymakers have taken it too far and taken it too far for their own economy's benefit. Some of the move that we've seen into negative rates, which again was meant to be very temporary policy, having rates go negative, stay negative, and now being pushed further into negative is a very open debate, not only whether is that not providing actual stimulus to the economy, but even on the other side, is that policy that's meant to be stimulative actually causing harm to the economy? We've certainly, after the ECB that we saw in September, had a very strong rearguard action from a large part of the ECB. I've spoken to several members of the ECB post that governing council meeting, and many of them didn't oppose the idea of stimulus, but this form of monetary stimulus potentially being harmful. The Japanese, again, where I go to a lot and, and spend much time, have clearly privately will tell you that all their analysis, both by the central bank and by the FSA locally, shows you that negative rates is probably doing more harm than good. It's certainly causing financial stability issues in Japan. The RICS Bank last week was one of the most interesting central bank meetings that I've seen in a long time, where the RICS Bank basically told you in their statement that they're going to hike rates next month, not because of any view on the underlying positive structure of their economy, quite the opposite, but just because they need to get to zero. And that the idea of negative rates is kind of outlived its purpose. So the governments or the central banks set the very short-term part of the yield curve, but the longer-dated stuff is some combination of market interaction, maybe it's growth and inflation expectations, but it's not truly anchored by what the Fed or the ECB does. And I was just very struck by, I want to say the depot rate in the ECB was still minus 40 and buns traded as high in price to a minus 70 yield, I think at the peak price. How does that happen? What do you think the factors that conspire to drive something to such a high price, to such an unappetizing risk-reward proposition, at least for the buyer, on a hold-to-maturity basis. What's going on there? Fear and panic. So at the end of the day, there are two primordial emotions that rule the supply and demand of all assets. And essentially, that's fear and greed at the extremes. And if you look at the moments when you've had completely stupendous moves in the long end, the two moments that I recall the most are January 2016, the month after Japan first went to negative rates, and August 2019, when just before the ECB reopened the left-hand side tail of their rate distribution. And both of them were identical in that really what happened there was when the ECB first went negative rates, they did it in quite a cautious way. The market understood, well, this is probably a European issue and it's a very limited. Yes, you've opened the left-hand side of the distribution beyond zero, but the ECB were very careful to give the message that it wouldn't go too far. And so people felt very comfortable in a very low-rate environment. So, for example, if you were an insurance company, a pension fund, etc., so the kind of the investment community that have long-term liabilities. If you had a mismatch between your assets and liabilities, you probably didn't want to lock it in at the very low levels that prevailed before these policy decisions. 
but you fell um, close enough to the low end of my distribution. From a risk-reward perspective, how much more can I lose effectively or how much wider can my asset liability gap go to versus I'm much better off for my policyholders to allow this moment to pass, rates to normalize, and that's in the best long-term interest of my members. But what happened after, for example, the Bank of Japan first went negative was a complete panic because a huge portion of that community said, oh my God, it's not just Europe, now it's Japan. This really is a race to the bottom. And if Europe can be at minus 20, minus 40, and now Japan can be at minus 10, where is the end game? And I, I remember in that week, JP Morgan wrote a piece saying that Japanese rates, now they've breached zero, can go to minus 375 basis points. And of course, it was complete garbage. And how they got to that was very spurious at best. And But that was kind of the mindset. And so if you look what happened in the weeks following the Bank of Japan, global long ends rallied about 150 basis points on average. And it was because all of a sudden, Every insurance company, pension fund, et cetera, in the world, any account with a big ass liability mismatch, this could be my last time to receive a 30-year or 50-year rate at a positive rate before we all end up at minus 400 basis points. And if we end up at minus 400 basis points and I have this gap unclosed, I'm out of business and my poor policyholders are left with nothing. My pension system is bust, et cetera, et cetera. And so you just had this you know, cathartic grab for yield out of fear of this close end of the distribution now being open and the unknown of where it could go. And then obviously things come down through 16, 17, 18. And all of a sudden again, when the ECB told you after Sintra that this kind of minus 40 limit that we all thought was the case for the three years previously could now be reopened, Again, just the imagination ran wild and people thought, oh my God, if they're willing to break minus 40 to minus 50, that means, wow, with the introduction of tiering, maybe they could go. And you, if you go back and look at the commentary, there was all kinds of commentary about maybe ECB can go to minus 200, minus 300. And so in that context, buying a bond at minus 70 doesn't sound so crazy. So then it's obviously not until you actually get the reality of the ECB and it being pretty clear that they are at their limits, that the market's being able to calm down and normalize again. You mentioned maybe some of the really aggressive policy from central bankers in terms of negative rates. We might have peaked out in terms of this notion of the side effects or just the efficacy down around zero. And you spent some time talking about paradigm shifts. One of the things I think you're starting to see from folks like Draghi mentioned a bunch of times, the fiscal. Let's do some stuff on the fiscal side. And so I guess the first question is, how do central banks reactivate inflation in some ways? There's a, obviously an incredible shortfall in Japan and Europe specifically, maybe not as much in the US, but what is that pathway? If it's not further and further negative rates, well, what is it? And is there a anticipatory, more aggressive fiscal side? There's been talk on MMT and so forth. How does that figure into your thinking in the years ahead. So we're always trying to fight the last war and policymakers are certainly always trying to fight the last war. And so what was the big war of the global financial crisis was excessive debt. And so essentially the policy mix that emerged out of the great crisis of 2008 was one that said, you have this great debt that was built up. Governments need to bring that down over time. So generally, 
the fiscal impulse over that period of time was negative because the fiscal benefit to the economy is all about the rate of change. And so it's irrelevant that they had big deficits because they were aiming for declining deficits, which therefore was contractionary for the economy. And the central bank's job was to allow the process of governments paying down that debt by flooring rates at zero and keeping them there for a long time. So therefore, governments could repair their budgets over time. That was really the great fiscal monetary understanding that we emerged from post-08 and 09. However, if you have, and I think the great misunderstanding from markets about, wow, will this QE and zero rates be inflationary? By definition, it can't be inflationary if essentially the multiplier side of that is shrinking. So you can have rates at zero. You can be create, you know, you essentially can have money at zero, be doing quantitative easing. But if the credit side of the economy is shrinking, you're going to have no velocity of that money. And so the big misconception about, oh, we haven't been able to create inflation. Of course, we may be able to create inflation because monetary and fiscal policy have been working in opposite directions for a decade. In almost every country in the world that had very easy monetary policy, they were having very austere fiscal policy. And then even if you look at the US, once Trump opened the fiscal targets, was exactly when the Fed was tightening policy. So even when the US spent the money, that actually went with tighter monetary policy where you had a higher rate, quantitative tightening, and obviously the stronger dollar that came with that. So I guess it's very explainable why we've been in, in a low inflation regime despite the very easy monetary policy. And so we're now getting to a very interesting point in markets where the war, the last war, is no longer the financial crisis and the debt buildup. Generally, debts come under control due to a combination of budgets having come under control and just a decade of zero rates having taken everyone's interest bill to close enough to zero that the new war is lowflation. And so policies that you would have been laughed out of the room 10 years ago are now being seen as the necessary prescription. And that is obviously to get fiscal and monetary working in the same direction. And so I imagine clearly where we're going, and it seems quite obvious, is we're going to keep monetary policy at a very easy level. I think the general pushing on the string is over. So I don't expect central banks to try and push economies into further and further negative rates and and whatnot. But I think where we're going is a union of monetary and fiscal moving in the same direction. So we'll keep monetary policy very easy, but that will now be turned and pressure will come on the fiscal teams now that there is fiscal space where fiscal expansion should come in unison with generally easy monetary policy. And then that in turn should create inflation. Now, the great irony of all of this is if we actually achieve inflation, which is the goal of these policies, is actually what blows up the system that's been created over the last 10 years. And this to me is absolutely fascinating that you've got a whole global team of policymakers have created a construct that will be completely blown up if they ever achieve their goal. The only way not to blow up the system is for global policymakers to absolutely fail in their goals of achieving to create inflation. So let me explain for a second how that is. Is Let's say you have a balance sheet of $4 trillion, $5 trillion. And because you've been running this for the last decade, or it's close to zero, 
you're only earning, let's say, for example, case you're earning zero on it, pretty much like the Bank of Japan. So you have an asset side of the balance sheet that's earning zero or small positive, zero to 50 basis points. You have an overnight rate that's zero. So that's fine. You're earning a small positive spread. You know, say you have up to 50 basis points on your asset side and you're funding it at zero, which is your overnight rate. You can keep that going forever as long as you keep your policy rate at zero. So you can end up saying, let's do more QE. Let's take that asset side of the balance sheet to 10 trillion, 20 trillion, 30 trillion. There is absolutely no problem to that. What gets it undone is if all of a sudden you have a shock to the system and inflation starts going to three, four, 5%. Because in that case, you've got one of two very bad options. You can respond in a orthodox central bank way, which is to begin to raise rates. And that would be kind of the system we've built up since the early 80s over the last 30 years. But in that case, how do you deal with these now very large balance sheets that are bound to get substantially bigger over the next few years? Because all of a sudden, if you normalize rates two, three, four, five percent and you've got an asset side of many, many trillions of dollars at zero, you're going to start to accumulate losses in the many, many hundreds of billions of dollars that's going to begin to be unacceptable from a political point of view. And how will that ever get unwound (laughs) without causing severe economic and market disruption? Your second choice is to say, I'm going to avoid that very bad outcome. And even though inflation has started to rise, I'm going to keep rates at zero. That's an even worse outcome because that is the environment where inflation expectations start to get out of control, go, wow, we are no longer able to respond to inflation. We're going back to the 70s. And that's the environment where this very neat world that we've lived in for the last 35 years of macroeconomic stability gets thrown out the window where you can really go back. I mean, everyone of our generation thinks it's impossible we would ever go back to double-digit inflation. That's exactly the environment that would create it, where if you started to have nascent inflation and central banks felt they were unable to respond to that. And so all of a sudden, inflation expectations start really rising rapidly and then we have an even bigger problem. So it, it would seem like a very tightly wound spring inflation. It's very difficult to surmise anything of a scenario where the central banks are actually trying to fight inflation. It just hasn't happened for for so long. And you also mentioned this just got me thinking was just the way the institutional portfolios are constructed these days. I think you tell me if you agree, but it really leans on the notion of risk on risk off that I've got these two opposites. And I could put them into my portfolio and both have a positive return, stocks and bonds, but they're pretty uncorrelated. I mean, this year, I think the S&P is up 20%. Bonds are up 15-ish percent, depending on- Been what, a great what year for risk parity. Right. And the negative correlation is on the order of 50%. I mean, it's a fascinating dynamic. But if you go back to the 80s, you see that stock and bond prices were very positively correlated. And it feels to me like in terms of a regime shift, that- idea that inflation's rising and the central bank might have to do something about it is something people are reasonably unprepared for. It probably won't happen, (laughs) but you paint a picture there. And I'm curious on the asset called inflation, people look at the term premium and it's negative or maybe it was more negative, but it's pretty negative. Are they just giving away inflation? Is that something that you look at and say that could be something to capitalize? That's a cheap option if the world changes in some ways? Yeah. Break-even inflation is certainly one of the cheapest assets 
under-owned, unloved. It's one of the only well-carrying fixed-income instruments left <laughs> at this point. I think that, look, if you go and you look at how break-even behaved this year, look, during 17 and 18, there was a very strong bid for tips, for real yield, for break-even protection. One of the largest central banks in the world was very aggressively switching their nominal portfolio for tips that created a, a huge bid and I think gave parts of the market a false sense of security in terms of the behavior of these securities. And when that major, major, major holder stopped buying into this year, I think you left large parts of the investment community who are holding <laughs> tips at the wrong level for a changing economic environment. Clearly, the market was very overweight and you've had just a ginormous capitulation this year. It's been very unusual because typically tips were very well behaved last year while the Fed were tightening and now the Fed are easing and breaking has done nothing but go down, which is clearly not the behavior you would expect. And I think it's related to this dynamic. And so I think certainly the pitch for tips or to own break-even inflation is to say that big stop out of a market that was too long with all the comfort of a big whale buying behind them, that stop out that's happened over the last six to eight months is now probably done. And just at the point where the Fed are certainly eased quite a lot of regrowing their balance sheet, are in the final stages of their review of how to really take a go a step further in generating inflation. Just when we're starting to see positive fiscal responses, China's really stepped up their fiscal stimulus. The UK has just done the largest fiscal spend in 15 years. Even fiscal hawks in Europe, like Holland, are finally generating significant positive fiscal impulse. Germany, not quite yet, but they'll get there. Australia is doing a big fiscal. So we're getting this union of monetary and fiscal and right with break-even inflation at the lows when the market position has been right-sized already. So I think there's a good case to win break-even inflation, absolutely. So we covered a lot of ground. Just as we wrap up, I'm curious if you can share with us any research or specific areas of investigation that you and your team are looking at. Just what's top of mind as you kind of survey the landscape of what's happening in markets, what's most on your mind these days? Sure. I think if you go back to what's been a constant thread through this discussion, it's been that some of the biggest moves happen with that union of financial markets and politics. A lot of the time you get those moves in emerging markets. Generally in G10, you're dealing with elections of center-right, center-left. And the last really big game-changing election was what we talked about in Japan that really had a significant change of economic policy. And therefore the potential P&L opportunities when you have a deep liquid market like that with that drastic change are beyond meaningful. And so I'm really excited about coming to 2020, obviously the US election. This could be a really historic, both political change, as well as a historic potential market generating moves. Because look, we've got Trump who's unusual in himself, but on the right wing popular side. And again, my experience in emerging markets is generally once a country decides to go populist, it stays there for a while. It tries right-wing populism. When that doesn't work, it tries yeah. left-wing populism. Right. And so the potential for an election as divisive as, let's say, a Trump versus Elizabeth Warren, the potential for such a ginormous shift in the U.S. economic construct if someone on the far left of the Democratic Party 
was to win the nomination, let alone win the presidency. But what you'd have to price in about that change in the system could make for unbelievable volatility next year, which the market's just not pricing in. And it's very hard to know when the market will price the direction of that in, in terms of the dollar and asset markets. But what is sure is that will come. And so what we've been trying to focus on is how do you find opportunities in the volatility markets that allow you to pre-position for that without necessarily needing to take a big directional bet today when that could be the market focus on that could be now, might not be till the February, March primaries, might not be. But certainly once the market does focus on it, your ability to buy optionality will be gone. And so how do we buy that volatility and forward volatility today? Because I think given the controversial nature of this election, it's coming. Yeah. Well, so interesting. And Ben, I want to thank you very much for being a guest today. That was a great conversation. Great. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.